friends, and I want to welcome you here. Uh, we haven't had the chance to do yet. Yet this morning, we're going to continue uh, with the teaching time of our morning in our series entitled The Gospel. And last week, uh, Pastor Keith began our teaching series and highlighted for us the fact that the gospel is a tough concept to define succinctly, but it's a phrase that churchy people use a lot. And so we should probably get some clarity in our minds and in our thinking as to what we mean when we use the phrase uh, the gospel. And so our question that we explored last week together was, what is the gospel? And we had some good chatter on our uh, Twitter account uh, last weekend during our teaching time. And as always, you're welcome to join the conversation there. When you tweet, just make sure you put at Jericho Ridge in the body of it, and then that'll get captured. Uh, your questions, ideas, thoughts, and observations about our teaching times together. And uh, some of you had great definitions and great summaries last week as we were talking about and working to define what is the gospel. And some of you left disappointed and a little bit confused that we didn't give you a pithy, tidy, 140-word character or less phrase of a definition uh, for the gospel. And take heart, I'm not going to do that this morning either for you, so you'll leave disappointed again. Uh, in fact, it's probably going to take us the better portion of our six-week series, and we've called in some big guns with a PhD on April 1st to unpackage even a part of the depth of what it means to explore the phrase uh, the gospel as it's used particularly in the New Testament. So uh, if you are uh, here, then let me paint a little picture for you of where we're headed in our series over the course of the coming weeks, and that will give you a little bit of an idea. You'll find this on page 25 in your Momentum Journal. And if you don't have one, uh, then you can wander back at any time to the uh, uh, Welcome Center, and there's some that are out there. There were also some journals on uh, the music stands with the ushering team when you came in this morning. And so if you need a Bible also, we'd be happy to provide you one. You can wander back there at any time. If you don't have a copy, just take that home with you. It's our gift uh, to you. Because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, that last song that we sang, Ancient Words That Are True, talking about the words of the Scripture and the root of the Gospel. And so our teaching series is built on four questions, four compelling questions. So questions that every worldview has to answer and every person has to wrestle with at some point in their life and in their journey. And the first question is a question of authority. Who is in charge around here and to whom are we accountable as individuals? If God exists, are we accountable to him? And if God exists, which we believe that he does and reveals himself to us in the scripture, and if he created us, which we believe, then we are not self-accountable. One of the songs that we sang talked about the fact that we'll stand before God at one day at some juncture in history. And if the text of the Bible is true, then we're accountable to God for our lives and for how we live them, for our choices, little and big. So the question of authority is a significant one in every worldview. The second question that drives us to ask the question, well, what is the gospel, is a question not of authority, but of the reality of our world. We look around and we see, you know what, the world is 
is broken in some significant ways. Talking to Margaret yet again this morning about you know another church that was bombed internationally, uh, where her family members uh, worked. We think about uh, the the people that we're working with and serving in Guatemala. Almost 20% of a population disabled physically in some significant ways. There are so many things that are not right with our world. And so the gospel and the Christian worldview has to address what is the problem with our world. And we're going to talk more about this on April 25th. Is there a problem? If so, what is it? Who caused it? And when we address this problem of sin and evil, we'll talk about the fact that the problem stems from our rebellion as humanity against a holy and loving God. And that begs the third question that the gospel addresses. Questions of authority, questions of reality. But the third question that the gospel asks is, how has God, what's God doing about that? What has God chosen to do or not do about that? How has God acted in response to the problem? What is God's solution? Well, a quick summary might be to say that God in his love sends a second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, to be our substitute. He lives a life we should have lived. He dies the death that we should have died. And so Jesus is at the very heart of the gospel and God's response. But it's possible for a person to say, well, that's all fine and good, Brad. That must be nice for good. That's good news for some people out there. But we have to ask the question, how might that be good news for me? How does that, uh, the gospel or God's solution become good news for you and for me? Because the gospel to the writers of the New Testament was not an abstract philosophical concept. It wasn't just a, an idea about who God was and what God had done. It's a question also of personal response and responsibilities. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. And so faith and repentance are the response, two sides of the same coin of response that is called for. That's how the gospel gets appropriated into your life and mine. And so if you're here uh, this morning and you haven't taken that step of faith and response, know that that is our deepest prayer and our heart and desire for you as an individual, that you would come to that place of response to God, recognition of who he is and what that means for us in receiving the gift of life that Jesus offers, restoration and reconciliation in a relationship with God. But if you are a thinking person, and I trust that you are, the next very logical question that you should ask about those four things is, okay, well, how do I know that any of that stuff is true? Like, where are you getting your information from about all of those particular things? God, humanity, Jesus, and response. Or another way of asking the question is, like, how does God, how did God reveal himself or show any of this stuff to us? How can we know about these things? How did God communicate these things to us? And one of the things to consider is that God is a communicator. And as uh, men and women who are made in his image, we are all communicators by nature. Now, I gave up Facebook for Lent, although I forgot that my blog posts through to it, so sometimes it doesn't look like I gave up Facebook for Lent. I'm reneging on my Lenten commitments. 
but <clears throat> uh, if you think about how much time as an individual you spend talking with other people, listening, texting, typing, being online, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, like all of this is this expression of an insatiable desire that we have as individuals to communicate with each other, to know and to be known by other people. And part of that desire that we have as communicators is because we're made in God's image and God is a communicator. But the question of how God communicates with us and what we understand from his communication is vitally important for this conversation about what is the gospel. Now, let me explain why. Really smart people like theologians and church history type people and other people who organize and study these things have, uh, have really thought about this a lot and said, well, there's kind of two categories that God communicates to us in. One, is, they call it general revelation. So general in the sense that it's a little bit more general in nature and available to everyone everywhere at all times. And so uh, can you think of some examples of what this might be? Like what would be some examples of general revelation? Just shout them out. Okay, sunrise, creation, absolutely. Yeah, the, the created order. Romans chapter 1 talks a lot about this. So people will see what it is that God has made, and as a result of that, uh, they're without excuse. talks about in Psalm chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech, no language where that is not heard, that their voice has gone out to the end of the world. And so to wrestle with this fact of, well, how would a person then, what do they do with that particular expression of general revelation? Like for people that don't have a Bible, for example, in their language, what does that look like in terms of accountability? So that's a great example of general revelation. Other examples of general revelation you can think about. thinking hard yeah jessica sorry conscience absolutely yeah conscience uh, god has has placed something within each of us as human beings a moral compass that helps us understand and orient ourselves in a way uh, that demonstrates his character and demonstrates who he is demonstrates his um something of his his design and desire for us now we can pollute that we can shut it up and edu try and educate it away uh, we can do all kinds of things to distort that particular expression of it. But it's another great example of general revelation. Uh, in the third century AD, uh, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, talked about something called uh, common grace, which is a uh, suggested that there's experiences of God that all humanity can experience all across the world at all times that are demonstrations of his character to us. Things like good food and enjoying good food. Things like he talked about where the scriptures say the rain falls on the just and the unjust, although I personally could do with a little bit less of this particular form of common grace these days around here. 
Um, but uh, he talked about you know that as an experience common to humanity that God God doesn't make a distinction that just people who know Him and love Him get to experience that part of His character. Part of God's heart and His love can be found in things like good governance and philosophy and education and stable societies and the rule of law and all kinds of wonderful and generous good gifts that God has given to humanity. And it's crazy to think about the fact that even those who deny God's existence and even those who who actively despise him and who don't believe that he exists are active recipients every day of God's common grace in their lives. And Jessica mentioned another uh, expression of uh, God's revelation to us in general ways, conscience. You know, people, we kind of, we know that it's wrong to kill our neighbors. We can damage again it. We can, we can distort that in all the ways that, that we can have done through history and great examples of that. Pastor Keith's going to talk more about that on, uh, in two weeks from today. But um, it's a part of God's revelation, his communication with us. So the question then becomes, if we knew about these things from God, if this is all we knew about from God, what we could see in creation, what we experienced together in common grace and conscience, if that was all that we knew, is that sufficient? Do we, are, we at the, are we at the gospel yet? Or are we in sort of prequel to gospel territory still? So if, if that's sufficient, then why in the world would we do something as a church like send uh, Jung-Hoon and Pearl to Southeast Asia to do literacy and translation work? One of the ways to think about general revelation is um, like going to a gallery and looking at paintings and trying to get to know an artist through their work that you see displayed. You can get to know a certain thing, certain element about that particular artist. You can know about generally the style in which they paint. You can see maybe the tags, little tags underneath it, even giving you a little bit more depth and a little bit more history. But it would be impossible for you to know everything you need to know about an artist just by in making inferences from their work. You have to do a little bit more digging. And so God in his mercy and in his grace did not leave us as humanity, just with general revelation. He invites us through general revelation to explore and chase it down further and encounter him in something that theologians call special revelation, where we encounter God directly and personally in unique ways. And there's all kinds of experiences and expressions of this. You can talk to Gary about uh, the number of people in Muslim uh, areas and backgrounds that during that God has revealed himself to in dreams and where they've experienced and come to be called to faith as a result of that, that's a God uniquely speaking special revelation into their lives and into their history. Because if general revelation was all we had, we wouldn't know about God's mighty acts of salvation. We wouldn't know about the incarnation. We wouldn't know about the cross. We wouldn't know uh, about all of the work of his ascension and Pentecost and Christ's second coming and all of these things. So God communicated to us actively and made additional choices over and above general revelation through the person of Jesus and sending uh, the second person of the Trinity and communicating to us supremely in that way. And that got written down in the text 
of the scripture and the record of Jesus' life in the Gospels and in the early portions of the New Testament and then reflections on that by early church leaders. And so this morning we're going to talk about that element of God's special revelation to us, the scriptures, and talk about the Bible. And the Bible as the conduit through which the message of the gospel comes to us. And today, in our day and in our time, the scriptures are the primary way in which God reveals himself to us. In article chapter 2 of our Confession of Faith, that's printed on page 29 of uh, your Momentum journals, reminds us that the Bible is the infallible word of God. It's the authoritative guide for faith and practice. And there's lots more that could be said about the scriptures, but perhaps this morning it might be helpful uh, for me to take you through a little bit of my personal journey and experiences with the scriptures. And then we're going to compare that with what the scriptures say uh, of themselves and claims that they make of themselves in uh, 2 Timothy. And we'll look and compare and kind of contrast those. So you're going to have to uh, bear with me a little bit because this is a short journey down autobiographical memory lane. And so if your experiences did not match mine, uh, bear with me. Maybe my background doesn't resonate with you. And so you'll have to forgive me uh, if that's the case. But for me, my journey with the scriptures began in growing up in a small uh, rural environment up in northern BC. And my parents started going to church when I was in uh, early elementary school. And uh, the name of this church that we started attending was Rolla Bible Baptist Church. And people would say it like that. They'd say Rolla Bible Baptist Church. And the tagline of the church was Rolla Bible Baptist Church, where the emphasis is on the Bible. As opposed to perhaps those churches where the emphasis wasn't on the Bible. It was always just a little confusing for me. But that was what the church was really kind of known for and was somewhat proud of. Uh, it was a, a bibliocentric kind of place. People had, um, because I, I didn't have a lot of experiences as a young child with this, people had very large Bibles. Uh, they were most often black None of this fancy, you know, covered type stuff or different translations like they were black. They had gold kind of edging around the pages. The pages were light and thin, although it didn't make them any less heavy. And uh, they had special cases to carry them around in all of the time. And so I sort of had this perception as a young child that the Bible was a, a different book than other books because people treated it as a different books. And everything was spoken of in terms of it being biblical or unbiblical and i wasn't quite sure uh, what that meant but that phrase was used a lot and so i experienced that people were very very fond of the bible but i also felt like people were a little bit maybe pushy with the bible like i felt like there were times when the bible was kind of getting shoved down my throat a little bit in in sunday school i can remember you didn't ask questions about the bible you just read it and you just, you just believed it. You weren't supposed to, you know, questioning the Bible was, it was tantamount to, I don't know what it was tantamount to, but you just, people would give you quizzical looks like, come on, we don't do that around here. Uh, you didn't interact with the Bible, you just memorized it. And you, it wasn't a living book to be engaged with. It was more like, like a holy book to be revered. And you didn't put it on the floor. You know, you certainly didn't put it on your smartphone, although I, I, don't, I don't think that existed in those days. But 
You used a correct translation of it, most certainly. And there was a kind of forwardness to discussions about the Bible and aggressiveness that I didn't quite understand as a young child. But it was part of the culture of that place. And it wasn't all negative. There were times when I, I deeply appreciated that. But it was something that was a little bit confusing for me to kind of process in my early journey with the Bible. One of the things that I noticed really early on as my parents came to faith was that reading the Bible had become very important or was very important to this group of people, both publicly and privately. People would talk very often about, I had read the Bible and this is what it had said, or I was reading the Bible. Uh, kids in elementary school, I felt they had their own Bibles, which was a new concept for me at our home. We had, I think we had one Bible. It was on a shelf somewhere, and it was very, very dusty. Uh, and so that people had their own Bibles was a little bit unique and mysterious to me and that they would kind of crack them. And uh, I thought that that maybe should be the job, or I was told that that was the job of other people or experts should be the ones that were with telling you what the Bible was about. And it was a little bit dangerous if you got involved in it yourself. But this group of people, they seemed to really go at the Bible pretty hard on their own, which was a bit of a surprising revelation to me. And so there was talk very often about reading the Bible and going through the Bible. And so there was kind of clearly communicated an obligation to read the Bible. And then if you were not reading the Bible, there was a lot of guilt that was associated with it. At least that's how I interpreted it. I can, I can remember um, going through and, and uh, all of the, the youth at one point, we were going to make a commitment. We had we'd all got one-year Bibles which had a date every day for how much to read on the Bible. And we were going to go through the whole Bible in one year. And I thought, wow, that sounds a little bit aggressive, but sure, I'll play along. So I started into it, and Genesis was awesome. January, I was just smoking it, feeling like this was awesome. And then we got into Leviticus, and I was like, ooh, man, four chapters of Leviticus per day. This is really not doing it for me at all. But the dates were kind of fixed, and so I waited, and I thought, well, maybe I'll pick it up again, maybe in the midsummer when we get to something interesting again. Uh, and there was, there was kind of the one-year Bible had a little bit of Psalms and Proverbs, that, so I would kind of cheat a little bit and read through those and just kind of ignore the rest of the sections that were going through in the Bible. But there was always an element, kind of that I felt anyways, of guilt if you weren't kind of keeping up with that kind of thing. We would sing songs like, read your Bible, pray every day. Pray every day, pray every day. You know, that kind of song. And so, like, I interpreted that then you were supposed to be doing all of these things, and if you didn't do it, that, that you maybe were not on the same, maybe, track or the same kind of level as the rest of the people that were doing that. So I, I kind of internalized that as guilt. You may have begun with us on your, our journey through the Bible in one year this year. You may exp have experienced a little bit of that. Maybe you flipped over to Project 345 uh, in the Momentum Journaling. So we want you to know... Uh, not to experience, that's not our design uh, and desire in that. Now looking back on that experience, I realize what we were trying to do and what we're encouraging here at Jericho is it's not about getting through the Bible, so it's not about checking off all of your boxes in your plan. In fact, our goal for you is that you would read maybe four to seven times per week. So if you've got the Momentum Journal, and you're on Project 345, that's three minutes and 45 seconds a day for four days out of seven, or five days out of seven, if you want to track through with the New Testament. And so we're not about inducing guilt around here. We're about giving you the tools 
And in the end, it's not about getting through the Bible. It's about getting the Bible through you and into your life and wrestle with uh, what the implications of that for us. But in my, in my early journey, I felt ob- this obligation and I felt guilty if I didn't read it. So as I grew up in this environment, as I read a little bit more of the Bible, I began to develop some ideas about the content of the Bible and how it related to my life. And one of the early ideas that I got about the Bible, and maybe this is something that you might share, is that it seemed to me that when I read the Bible, the Bible had a lot of stuff in it about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So to me, it felt like the Bible was full of rules. And so when I developed that perception, then as I began to read through the Bible, every time I'd come across things, oh, yeah, here we go again. Another list of things to do, things not to do. Boy, this is getting to be a pretty long list. How in the world am I supposed to do all of these things and not do all of the other things? And uh, I love the way that uh, as we've gone through and begun to explore a little bit more about the Bible with our kids, I love the way that the, the Jesus Storybook Bible puts this in the introduction to it and trying to help kids understand a little bit more uh, about uh, what the Bible is about. And it says, now some people think the Bible is full of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's mostly about God and about what he has done. I like that. It's kind of a great way to think about the Bible because it begins to shift you from an orientation towards kind of a checklist relationship uh, and understanding God as someone who just gives you a bunch of rules that you need to be about. So some people, and I remember this in my experience too, in a desire to kind of push away from that sense of rules, think, okay, well, if the Bible isn't just full of rules, like what is it and what is it full of and what is it about? And so you might be tempted to swing to the opposite extreme, which I certainly did. Uh, I remember I was in Chicago a year and a half ago listening to a seminar by New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, and he highlighted that sometimes people that grow up with this kind of perception or have this perception, if they want to distance themselves from this, what they move to is kind of the other end of the spectrum, and they start seeing the Bible as full of blessings and promises. And so they think, well, it's like a little daily calendar, you know, or a little kind of a little pop-up window on my computer that will come up every day, approach to the Bible. That all I need is just a nice little platitude from the Bible to start my day off right. 365 little blessings and promises that usually begin with Psalm 23. They usually are in King James English, so you know 100% it's from the Bible and not from somewhere else. Uh, and they tell you about the wonderful things that God has in store for your day and the things that God wants you to know. And the Bible becomes all about happy faces and LOL messages from Jesus to you. And then you come to church and hope that the Bible is preached on in a way that makes you happy, and then you expect God to make you happy. And the challenge with this approach, obviously, is that the first time that you bump up against the pain and difficulty of the real world, you kind of think, hmm, well, there certainly are blessings and promises in the Bible, but if that's all that's there, it doesn't quite square with my experiences of reality. So fundamentally, the message of the Bible is that God is good and that he is for us, but there's a lot about our lives that are not good and about our world that does not make us happy. And so 
I began to read the portions of the Bible that nobody had told me about before, the sections of the Bible like Jeremiah and Lamentations and Job and the parts in the Psalms that weren't all about the happiness and clappy type stuff. And I realized, wow, the Bible actually speaks very powerfully to the emotions of real life and our experiences as human beings. And so it's got to be more than just rules. It's got to be more than just full of blessings and promises. And the next phase of my journey with the Bible got a little bit confusing and complicated as I went off to Bible college. And here I was exposed to kind of deeper studies of text. And I began to have my faith in the Bible shaken a little bit. I learned about things like literary criticism and historical criticism that started to rip the pieces of the Bible to shreds and question parts of the Bible. And it began to make the meanings of texts that I had thought were very simplistic and easy to understand a little bit more complex and maybe not what I had always thought that they were. And so as I began to push into this, I began to realize, wow, you can actually use the Bible to justify all kinds of stuff. And so I began to actually do that and use parts of the Bible to justify my behavior because I, I realized now I could pit certain parts of Scripture against other parts of Scripture and pick the ones that I liked the most, and I could project my own behavior and morality into the text of the Bible. And I could say things like, well, friend, I, I understand that you, <laughs> you think that, but really I'm all about the New Covenant, and that seems like a bunch of law and Old Testament stuff to me. And I could kind of write people's arguments off then on the basis of what sections I particularly liked in the Scripture and the parts of the Bible that I liked and I agreed with. Mostly the books like James, which talk a lot about grace, and the Gospels, and Jesus, love. And I never uh, use those to kind of explain away some of the other parts. And many, many people do this, either virtually or in our minds, or actually physically take the scissors to the Bible and start cutting the parts out that you don't actually like and agree with, or that don't particularly reflect the tenor or tone of your life at that particular moment in time. And so the Bible can actually become a powerful tool for self-justification as opposed to the wonderful revelation of God's nature and the truth and reality of the gospel as it is and is designed to be. But what I came to in my journey is that none of these things were fully satisfactory. And none of these things got to the heart of what the gospel and the Bible is for or about. And so I went further along on my journey with God and studied what the Bible says about itself and how that related to my life. And I began to come to some different conclusions and began to approach the Bible very differently in my day-to-day life. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 14 to 17, because the Bible here talks about and makes some very compelling claims about itself and what the purpose and approach to the Bible is, ways not to read it, and ways maybe that we should engage with the Bible. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, reading in verse 14, a mentor Paul is talking to his mentor, Timothy, who says, but you, Timothy, you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know that they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have been given, they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation, the good news, the gospel that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God. God is its author. 
and it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. When I read that, I realized how profoundly different and what a profound assault that that was on the various approaches in my journey reading the Bible. And in this short section, we actually have a window into another young man's journey with the scriptures in the life of Timothy. And his is quite different than mine. One of the things that we see in Timothy's life and experience is that he grew up in a context where the scripture was spoken into his life. As a child, Timothy was deeply privileged to have a mother and a grandmother who taught him and took him to the scriptures. And they were people of integrity that he could trust so that their lives matched what they were teaching him in his growing up experiences. They were intentional about making sure that even from his childhood, Timothy knew about God's revelation to us. And for us here at Jericho Ridge, just as a sidebar, this is why we invest such a significant amount of our resources in work with children and youth. It's not so that they can be entertained. If you head upstairs with Ruth Ellen and her team for Kids at the Ridge, if you head downstairs with Mike and listen to what goes on at the source on the first and last weekends of the month, you'll experience profound uh, teaching from the scriptures at age-appropriate level. It's not, we don't send the kids out so that it's quieter in here so that we can concentrate more during from 11 o'clock until noon. We do it because we want to have kids that grow up and understand the way that the scripture speaks into their lives and understand it from people that they know and trust. And we as a faith community partner with you as parents in that endeavor. And the reason that we do that is because as uh, young people, as we see in Timothy's life, as he grew in his understanding of the scripture and had it spoken into his life over time, he learned from it to choose the truth, and he learned from it wisdom. King James says, The holy scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Most of us, most of all, um, we want to experience a life that, where we are growing in wisdom and growing in an appropriation of truth into our lives in various disciplines. And Timothy experienced the God of the Bible and met God in that place that he grew in wisdom because it was true and because it was for our good. The scriptures gave Timothy the wisdom to make right choices in his life. Not only that, but in the scriptures, Timothy gained the assurance and clarity that he was walking in truth. Because scripture is God's divine self-revelation for us. It's useful for teaching. It's useful for correction. It's useful for reminding us what is deeply true and good and worthy in the world. The Bible teaches us and clarifies our motives, clarifies our actions, clarifies our thoughts. And the exciting thing is that we don't have to then figure those things out just in a self-referential way on our own. We have the scriptures that you and I can live with a sense of assurity and assurance and clarity 
about what God wants from us because he's told us in the Bible what he wants from us and invites us to get to know him there. And the counterpoint to that is also found in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. The scripture helps us realize not only what's right in our lives and it gives us assurance and clarity of those things, but also helps us understand where we're off course, what's wrong with our lives. It reflects back to us our mistakes and our rebellion. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 12 says, the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It gets right into our lives, penetrates into the deep places of our lives, to the dividing places of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. One of the ways to think about uh, the way that the scripture works in our lives is this. Let's say you're driving to a place that you have never been to before. And so you do what most women and almost no men do, and that is you turn your GPS on. And you uh, input where it is that you're going. And the purpose of the GPS, of course, just for those men who refuse to use it, is it's to keep you on the right course so that you don't have to drive around. And also so you don't have to ask for directions. So it's a wonderful gift of God to you, and it'll save your marriage, perhaps, uh, if, you're, if you're married. So you just put in your, you know, your route that you want to go to, right? And you just type in the address there. And then the job of the GPS is to tell you where you are making wrong decisions and veering off course. When you veer off course and you make a wrong turn, you don't want to drive around or you don't have to drive around for hours or days or decades because it tells you right away in a very polite voice of your particular accent and choosing. It can be Australian. It can be British. We like the British lady on ours. Uh, it's a very calm and soothing voice. But it tells you right away, please make a U-turn. <laughs> you, you've gone off course, the lady is telling you. You're not, you're not going in the direction where you want to be going. And the Bible has very much the same function in our lives, if and when we let it. When you're beginning to veer off course, the Bible corrects you and says, please make a U-turn. The Bible is our authoritative guide for life and for practice. And so one of the implications of it is we need to be familiar with it enough to learn where it is that we're marching off course, and allow it to do its job. Because Timothy understood that part of the piece uh, in the role of Scripture is to train our character and to show us how to live. And here's my concern pastorally for us as a group and maybe for you as an individual. We asked a question in our survey that we took last spring in the Reveal survey, and the question was this. I study the Bible to find out more about God and to find truth and direction for my life. And only six in ten people answered affirmatively to that question across all segments of the survey. So my, my pastoral concern is that if the Bible is our guide, then it appears that some of us aren't very familiar with the guidebook. And perhaps we've fallen into some of the unhealthy habits and patterns and perceptions that I referenced in my own journey with the Bible. 
And maybe we're telling ourselves things like, well, my pace of life really isn't conducive to uh, scripture intake right now. All that Bible reading stuff. Maybe we're telling ourselves things like, I, I don't know, once a week ought to be good enough. If Brad or Keith blabs on about it for like 35 or 40 minutes, like how much more do I need? Maybe you're telling yourself, I, I'm not sure what it is that we're telling ourselves or what it is that you're telling yourself about the scripture. But friends, today, as we move into our series on the gospel, I wanted to take this opportunity again to remind us of the supreme value of getting to know God regularly in his word. A short section from our pastoral application of our confession of faith says the creator has invited us into relationship. And as we meet God in the scriptures and as we get to know him, we find ourselves like the men and women whose stories are captured in the scriptures invited into that relationship with God. As we get to know the heart of God through scripture, as we serve God's purposes, we will grow in a dynamic relationship with God because getting to know God changes us. As we get to know God as revealed in the Bible, we develop deeper convictions about the kinds of people that we ought to be. And we come to understand the scriptures and we come to care deeply about a moment-by-moment obedience to God. We learn to know God as he's revealed himself in creation, the scriptures, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and in Christian community together. And as we close our time here today, I want you to watch this video. It gives some practical advice and some real-life examples about the power of letting God's word speak into your life. Let's pray together as we watch this. God, your word is living, it's active, It's powerful, it's authoritative, and so we thank you for that and all of those things. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We pray that you would let your word do its work of challenging and confronting us, encouraging us where we need to, and helping us steer back on course. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.